Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So it's wonderful when we get together. We uh, we start by uh, circling up in the morning, and one of the indigenous people leads a prayer to Creator for safety, for the health of the land, for the uh, development of our community of burners. Um, and it's a wonderful way to start. Then they give us the um, the objectives of the the burn. You know whether we're doing a ground burn or pile burn. They, we talk about safety, where the nearest burn center is. Um, Although we uh, should emphasize, we've never had a burn accident. That's good. We've never had any accident yet requiring <laughs> yeah. the evacuation of a burn. Yeah. Then we go out and burn in squads, and we have a wonderful day of burning. My friend, Dr. Peter Hess, is a theologian and an environmental scientist and a wildland fire practitioner and firefighter type two. At first, we planned to talk about his essay about theology and Star Trek called Identity and Moral Personhood but postponed it a few times because he and his sons have been up in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California doing controlled burns or fighting fires. Now my family is dedicated to a little cabin in the mountains that belongs to a family friend and in the summer we also cut down and stack wood and in the winter as the snow is falling we light these giant burn piles and we really enjoy the fires and the kids like to try out the chainsaw and it's a great time and it protects the forest. So I thought how cool would it be to learn about Peter's work which is a collaboration of firefighters and indigenous communities, and all kinds of people. So I asked him about the Catholic theology of stewardship of the earth and Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. Now, we're friends and I admire and respect him, yet it became clear as we were talking that he and I have very different political views about environmentalism and climate change. So that was a surprise. Then again, maybe it's good to hear two brothers in Christ talk respectfully about topics they don't agree on. And I wish more people could do that in our polarized age. In any case, I hope you enjoy this interview, and I'm looking forward to our next interview about theology, science fiction, and identity and moral personhood that we had planned to record, and we still plan to record in the coming weeks on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics. A conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions, and they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, my guest is Peter Hess. He's a Roman Catholic theologian who specializes in issues at the interface of science and religion. He served as the International Director for the Center of Theology and Natural Sciences in Berkeley, California, and he's the Director of Outreach to Religious Communities with the National Center of Science Education. He's taught at the Graduate Theological Union um, here, the GTU here in Berkeley, where he also has a PhD in historical theology from there, and he has a master's from Oxford University. So um, he is a specialist in both topics, and it'll be really fun to hear what he has to say. Uh, I go to church with Peter. Uh, we both attend St. Mary Madeline here in Berkeley, where he and his wife Vivian are both uh, parishioners. In addition, his sister Mary was my fourth grade teacher long ago, last century. And I remember her class with great, great fondness. And I remember how she had us memorize poems, some of some of which are with me to this day, like The Eagle by Tennyson and a number of others. So that was a great habit she got me into and um, something I think about as I'm a teacher these days. So welcome welcome to Almost Good Catholics, Peter. Thank you, Chris. Um, to extend that anecdote, um, my sister Mary taught a little boy named Joseph Nagel, who then went on to be hired by the School of the Madeline and taught my son Robert, uh, who is now 24, and uh, Joseph became principal of the uh, School of the Madeline. So it's kind of come full circle. That's right. That's um, right. He was in the same class as my my brother, and we have a Almost Good Catholics interview with him. So that I think that was like back episode number seven or something like that. I will link to 
my interview with Joseph and our mutual teacher, Mrs. Skinner, uh, in the notes below. Yes, and Heather Skinner, of course, has been uh, a godsend to the parish and to the school and shares lots of the concerns that I have about um, the environment and the future of life on Earth and bringing children to appreciate the diversity of life and the importance of defending it. All right. So do you have a you have a joke or a funny story you'd like to use to? Um, well, um, I recently gave a talk at um, the um, Forest Innovation Summit in San Francisco um, two weeks ago, put on by the Swedish consulate, uh, because the Swedes, uh, being a forested country, have become very interested in the kinds of innovation that are in common between Sweden and California. So we had a lot of startups there and a lot of profound presentations on all aspects of forest stewardship. And I was asked to speak on cultural and prescribed burning. And since I happened to be the very last speaker of the conference on the last day where about a third of the audience had already lost for the airport, I was in that um, uh, unfortunate position of having a smaller audience, but I was in the fortunate position of being able to sum up um, two wonderful days of the conference. And so I used a, a cartoon by my favorite Scandinavian cartoonist, Gary Larson, Scandinavian American. Hmm. And I said, I said in my slide, what a splendid conference, the richness and diversity of perspectives, the earnestness of the networking, the brilliance of the startup entrepreneurs, the depth and acuity of the questions hour after hour lead me to ask the question posed by Mr. Osborne's student in Gary Larson's cartoon. And it's this little kid raising his hand saying, Mr. Osborne, may I be excused? My brain is full. <laughs> and I often feel that um, yeah. at conferences. I often feel that after discussions with fascinating people, because, you know, you get to a point in your life where um, you've had uh, you've had your PhD training, you've been to dozens, if not hundreds of conferences, you've taught thousands of students, and you sit there wondering, how can I understand anything until I understand everything? And I find that more and more in my life, that because I don't understand even a fraction of everything, can I actually understand anything? And of course, um, ecology and economy, and I used to teach this in my environmental ethics classes at the University of San Francisco and Santa Clara and elsewhere where I taught environmental ethics, ecology and economy come from the same root, oikos, meaning house. Mm -hmm. Ecology is words about or, or discussion about the way the house works. And economy is the rules of the house. And I pointed out that it's absurd to separate ecology and uh, ecological and economic thinking because they are two sides of the same coin. And if we're going to have a longer tenure on Earth than the two million years that Homo sapiens has already been here, we absolutely must begin to integrate our ecological and economic thinking. Well, and from a Catholic point of view, we happen to know that it is a house and it has a master and a builder, and we are we are guests here for a, a limited time only, and yet we have great stewardship of this house and the, the planet that, that we share. Right. And, and to give you a thumbnail, um, um, elaboration of my experience. I was born in 1956 and raised uh, for the first substantial part of my life in the mountains of Northern California at, in a place called Cobb Mountain, Lake County, California, on 40 acres that my grandmother had bought uh, in 1939 for $15 an acre. And it was a, a wonderful upbringing with parents who were very aware of the ecology of the area, the history of the area, since it was originally the territory of the Pomo Indians of Lake County. And they also brought us up backpacking. So I had a, a childhood filled with the experience of nature, stewardship of the land, um, burning, planting trees, hiking, backpacking, learning about the animals and plants and the ecology of the area. Then I, uh, I attended the University of San Francisco for four years, majored in philosophy, theology, and French, triple major. And then went to Oxford to do uh, a master's, a BAMA degree in philosophy and theology, uh, and came back to California in 1980, taught high school for four great years at an inner city 
school in San Francisco, St. John Ursuline, which has unfortunately since closed, and then decided I wanted to uh, study for a doctorate uh, at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where I ended up focusing on historical theology, particularly in the relationship between um, theology, history, and ethics. Uh, Christian ethics was my outside area. My dissertation was on the gradual integration of science into theological thinking from 1600 to 1900. And so a lot of my work since then, both in teaching and in uh, and at the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences and the um, National Center for Science Education in Oakland, was helping people integrate ideas of religion, culture, and science. Uh, and, and that really is the enduring theme of my academic work. Now, well, and that's that's hard to do because you are talking in very generalist terms to a big variety of people. I thought you were going to go the opposite direction earlier when you were saying how how your brain is full. Because when I was working on my PhD, also in history, it was about diplomacy in the 1520s, and boy, do I know a lot about diplomacy in the 1520s. But you move me a few decades or or a century or another country over, and it's all it's all new. And we find that we know more and more about less and less. That's the joke we had as as doctoral students till you suddenly know everything about nothing. But you are talking about something that spans centuries and spans three disciplines. How do you talk to everybody? And what do you think is the, what is the great thesis that, that you have, especially when you're speaking in the Swedish consulate? My doctoral experience mirrors yours in some way, except that I had three centuries to deal with, not just the 1520s. So in some sense, my my work was extreme. was was kilometers broad and a centimeter deep. Um, <laughs> and now that I have turned toward uh, climate disruption, um, uh, which was the the focus of my talk at the Swedish consulate, um, the title of which was um, the role of cultural and prescribed fire in maintaining forest health. Mm. Um, I, I um, you know, everything that I've learned and thought and taught for decades. Um, is now focusing on the question of how can humans rationally inhabit or rationally continue to inhabit uh, a livable earth for millennia to come or tens of millennia. And um, so in a way, it, it leads to the integration of everything that we as humans do, history, philosophy, religion, all the sciences, psychology, economics, um, and in some senses, it's an almost insurmountable task because very few of us can master uh, any of these, much less mm -hmm. lots of different disciplines. Um, Perhaps we together as a community can help each other out. Right. On the practical level, um, at our, our country place in Lake County, um, well, we lost our first house in a wildfire in 1962, and we... This, we continued uh, burning defensible space for 50 years. Um, we were, to a certain would, extent, would you quite... define would you define that term because it's familiar to all Californians, but maybe not to everybody. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, defensible space is basically around a house is about a hundred feet radius of space where there is very little vegetation and and no organic matter that can burn in the summer where a fire engine and crew could set up a stand to defend your house. And um, as, as Californians move further out into the WUI, W-U-I, which is the Wildland Urban Interface, hmm. we're seeing an increasing problem with people, and I include in my community in Lake County, um, people who have moved on, onto um, one-lane dead-end roads a mile long where access and eggs, ingress and egress is very, very difficult. And they're sitting ducks if a wildfire should come by. And so the only way to ensure your a modicum of safety is to create and maintain a defensible space by assiduously clearing and burning every year. And um, we were babes in the woods before the Valley Fire, the second fire to destroy our house in 2015, because we really had no concept of um, of a workable defensible space. There was brush within 10 feet of the house. The house was an old cedar-sided house with a degraded asphalt shingle roof. And so what we rebuilt after 2015 was a concrete-sided house with a steel roof. And um, 
a 100 foot radius defensible space. And for the ingress and egress roads, I'm trying to create a 25 foot wide uh, park like buffer roomed with with no leaves and pine needles and the and the trees limbed up. I have a so, question. Uh, I have a question to interject. I don't want you to, to derail yeah. us. Um, but I, I'm de dedicated to a, a particular cabin that belongs to an, a close family friend, and I stay there often in the winter and summer. We do that all the time. We're raking, we're cutting, we're raking, we're cutting. Do you, you as a real firefighter, have you seen where defensible space has made the difference between the destruction of a home and, and not? Have you seen people who did it properly whose houses survived a wildfire? Uh, yes, I have. Um, okay direction i'm not actually a firefighter i qualified as firefighter type two so i'm a wildland fire practitioner um i don't go out and fight fires in the summer but um quite a few of us in the brand new lake county prescribed burning association our fft2 we do um, extensive training in wildland firefighting but we use this during the winter from november until may to cut and burn and develop defensible space and develop our our capacity and our confidence in fire uh, on, on our own place, um, even though the house didn't survive, those places where I had, did, had done considerable ground burning, it's called broadcast burning, where you ignite uh, and burn large sections of the, the forest floor to reduce detritus uh, mm -hmm. of pine needles and oak leaves, I managed to save quite a few tall trees. Where I hadn't done that, the trees torched and they were incinerated and killed. Um, there were instances, um, not necessarily in the Valley Fire, which was actually a fire storm, um, and in a fire storm, it's difficult to save anything, but there are many fires that have happened in California since then. And uh, there are very clearly huge advantages in being able to save a structure if you have adequate defensible space. All right. Okay. So please continue. So uh, about 2019, a group of us in Lake County decided to, uh, to organize as a, a prescribed burning association and there are many of these in Northern California. Virtually every county north of, of the Bay, north of um, San Francisco has a PBA. Uh, and in fact, a lot of them in the Sierras. If you want to find out about the concept of a prescribed burning association, I can think of no better place to start than the Humboldt County PBA. They have a very simple website to access, wonderful uh, site showing the collaboration between the Yurok indigenous people and the landowners there. And, uh, and and they give lots of discussions of how prescribed burning works, uh, how bringing good fire back to the land uh, helps. Uh, we're not going to do that with the LCPBA because there's no point in reinventing the wheel. What we are doing and what's really working, and uh, I spent all of last week burning with both the uh, PBA and the and TERA, T-E-R-A, which is the Tribal Eco Restoration Alliance. It's a group um, run by the Robinson Rancheria of uh, Pomo Indigenous People in Upper Lake. And um, they um, they have extensive grants um, to help train people. They've got a trailer filled with drip torches and McLeods and um, helmets and other tools to, to loan out. And you should say a McLeod is a uh, sorry, sorry, half sorry. rake, half axe kind of thing. No, no, it's a half... It's it's got a it's a half hoe half rake half hoe that's better yeah uh, and it's um not a it, it's one of the yeah. it's one of the basic tools because it's a very big tined rake and and you you cut line you you rake um uh cut we call them cut lines cut lines are where you scrape to mineral soil and you can control your initial fire by by setting a fire off the uh, either a wet line which you lay down which is water or a cut line and then you burn. You burn uh, black lines, and black lines are areas of the forest floor where all of the fuel has been burned, and they're very good breaks. So Tara has the on-call burn crew for Lake County, and those of us who are in the Prescribed Burn Association, or Tara, belong to this um, on-call burn association. We have about 150 members, and when a call is put out for a burn, uh, we might get um, 50 people signing up. And uh, last week, we had a great uh, broadcast burn on Tuesday where we set fire to a couple of hillsides choked with pine needles and oak leaves so that if a fire comes through next summer, it won't burn all the trees. Uh, it won't ring burn them at the base and kill them. Uh, we reduced the leaf litter so that a fire could burn through rather coolly and allow the forest to survive. 
what we were doing on Tuesday and on Wednesday and Thursday was large pile burning at Bog State Forest. Um, they'd had a timber harvest, uh, a salvage timber harvest after the Valley Fire in 2015. And there were um, 20 or 30 huge piles of logs, say 20 feet in diameter and five feet high. And we 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 incinerated those and then cleaned up the forest floor. So it's wonderful when we get together. We, uh, we start by uh, circling up in the morning and one of the indigenous people leads a prayer to creator for safety, for the health of the land, for the uh, development of our community of burners. Um, and it's a wonderful way to start. Then they give us the um, the objectives of the, the burn, you know, whether we're doing a ground burn or pile burn. They, we talk about safety, where the nearest burn center is. Um, although we uh, should emphasize we've never had a burn accident. That's good. We've never had any accident yet requiring <laughs> yeah. the evacuation of a burn. Yeah. Then we go out and burn in squads, and we have a wonderful day of burning. And then we come together at the end, four or five o'clock, for the AAR, the After Action Review, where every member of the burn crew from the burn boss down to the newest recruit has an opportunity to express what they liked or disliked about the day, what went well and what went wrong, what they learned, what their hope is for future burns. So we're building a wonderful uh, community of burners that's um, men and women, old and young, tribal and non-tribal, professional and non-professional, and uh, every gender and uh, orientation you could imagine. And we really like each other and we like burning. And so we're building capacity and these people go go then back to their home communities or their home, uh, enlivened and, and enriched and able to pass on their knowledge to other people. So the spirit of the the spirit of the burning has to do with not dominating the earth, perhaps, but uh, respecting its natural balances. Small fires prevent big fires. It probably requires a little bit of humility because I imagine our impulse is to never let fires go. But if we don't let fires go, then we end up regretting it. What's the what's the philosophy? What's the spirit? What's the theology for you as a Catholic theologian working with indigenous people in Humboldt County? Uh, Lake County. Um, I actually Sorry, Lake County, yeah. I haven't been in Humboldt mm -hmm. County. Well, um, to just to back up a little bit, uh, in my talk at the Swedish consulate, mm -hmm. um, I had a slide in which I talk about how control over fire as technology is part of what makes us human. It's, mm -hmm. as, it's as important as the wheel or writing. Indigenous and pre-industrial peoples burned and continue to burn landscapes uh, in Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, and the Americas. And, and then I talked about how fire-bearing Homo sapiens radiated across across the globe when we came out of Africa and uh, eventually across the Bering Land Bridge into the Americas, where they settled many different ecologies. And of course, one of the ecologies that occurs not only in California, but elsewhere in the United States and elsewhere in the world is what we would call a chaparral biome, consisting of diverse drought-tolerant species. And um, these chaparral biomes are evolutionarily designed to burn either moderately on a decadal basis, that is every five or 10 years, or if we don't do that, they burn catastrophically on a semi-centennial basis. And all of the big fires recently in California have happened about 50 years after a big fire burned in virtually the same footprint. And so um, what... Um, what happened when white culture came to California is that we um, we didn't realize um, the the natural ecology. Early European settlers who came to California saw indigenous tribes setting fire to the land and regarded this practice as primitive. They were strangers to the ecosystem and fire's ecological role within the ecosystem, and so they suppressed it. And then, then in 1850, California passed the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians, which outlawed intentional burning. This was made actually worse by the um, what I call the disastrously misguided Smokey Bear campaign. Um, the World Advertising Council dreamed up Smokey in his ranger hat and dungarees in August of 1944, carrying a bucket of water saying, only you can prevent forest fires. And um, so uh, then, of course, uh, over the next yeah. century, we campaigned to exclude all fire from the landscape, which has inadvertently led to the overstocking of the forest with massive fuel loads. 
So that's really interesting. Does that mean that where the white settlers came from, which would be the East Coast and before that Europe, it just wasn't as arid as California, that uh, those are wetter places? Because I is there prescribed burning happening in the forests of Germany or England? Because I, I don't I can't think of it. And but when I come out to California, it's just drier here than those places. If you go camping in Vermont, the ground is squishy. You go camping in uh, the Sierras, the ground is dry. It's yes and no. It's a matter of cultural experience. Um, California is drier. However, one of the instructors for my uh, curriculum to become a firefighter type two, his name is Jose. He comes from Spain. And as you know, Spain, France, Portugal, Greece, and Italy have been having horrific fires with actually lots of deaths involved mm -hmm. in the last um, decade. And so Southern Europe is very familiar with fire. Um, and uh, Jose was telling us that the Basque farmers and the, and the Spanish farmers uh, have been have been burning since time immemorial. Um, it's it's less needed in Northern Europe, although Scotland recently has had wildfires. And, and on the East Coast of the United States, one of the most dangerous potential fire areas is New Jersey, the Pine Barrens. Um, there are people, uh, there are prescribed burning groups all over the United States. And in fact, I'm part of a Sierra Club committee to draft a prescribed burning policy we have members from Florida, where they do extensive burning. Um, uh, Oklahoma, where uh, there, there's burning in the tall grass prairie preserve. Uh, many different parts of the world uh, need burning, uh, but it, it's it's especially acute in the Southwest. And so that's why um, uh, we, we have decided that, um, I mean, we broadly as a, as a Western cultural species have decided that given our century of suppression of fires, California should be burning lots of acres per year. I've heard that we should be burning 1.2 million acres a year, but we're lucky if we burn 30,000. Wow. Yeah. So um, that's a really clear solution. You know, we all, we, many people wring their hands about um, climate change, but you have, uh, you have a solution that requires no government control. It just requires permission and well-meaning volunteers like yourself, trained, trained, trained volunteers. Yes, highly um, trained volunteers, and and uh... I, I do want to make a distinction, yeah. however, and this was what my um, talk at the Swedish consulate was about: the distinction between indigenous or cultural burning and non-indigenous prescribed burning. And I think it's important to highlight that tribal peoples, um, whether uh, in our state or in the United States or around the world, have engaged in regular seasonal burning not simply for the reasons that white settlers might engage in it. And and I'll, I'll say there are some very dubious reasons to do burning, like burning off um, landscapes in the Napa Valley just to clear land for more vineyards. For tribal peoples, um, um, I can distinguish at least four different reasons for burning. First of all, they burn to celebrate ceremony, tradition, and other values that are constitutive of tribal experience. Tribal experience revolves around a relationship um, between uh, indigenous peoples and the ecology in which they live. Secondly, um, to renew browse for animals such as deer, rabbits, and elk, a chaparral region that's cloaked, choked with senescent and dead brush is too dense for animals to move through and for hunters to follow them. Um, this second rationale is similar to what um, non-indigenous peoples do to, to clear land for browse. Third, to reduce wildfire danger to villages and infrastructure. And again, this is common between tribal and non-tribal people. Uh, everybody inhabiting a wildfire ecology knows that a region is catastrophically, is primed for catastrophic out, uh, outbreak of fires if we don't burn on a regular basis. The, uh, the fourth and, um, and most interesting aspect to me of indigenous peoples burning is to is their use of fire to strengthen or rejuvenate plants essential to diet and culture. And when I did my FFT2 training in um, Upper Lake um, at the Robinson Rancheria two years ago, um, we the first day we sat um, with four elders, four uh, grandmothers, who talked about tulis, the, um, the rushes that are used for building boats or structures that have to be burned to eliminate dead or matted tulies. 
sedges and grasses important for basket weaving also need to be uh, burned to rejuvenate them. Uh, willows for basket weaving and structures need to be periodically burned. Elderberry and manzanita for their juice and wild buckwheat um, need to be burned off so that the, uh, the young uh, plants will come back. And finally, acorns, and we did one burn where the objective was to burn under the oaks to reduce the population of acorn weevils that destroy, destroy the acorn meal. So on that day, we actually, this was in um, um, early October of 2022, we had to wait until one o'clock to ignite because the fire wasn't hot enough to burn the acorns. And so the idea is if you burn the acorns every five to seven years, you will reduce the weevil population, purifying the acorns for um, ceremonial purposes or for food. Um, in contrast to the, these reasons that I've given for uh, indigenous prescribed burning, uh, basically we have uh, four reasons I can articulate for non-indigenous people. We burn to reduce wildfire danger to homes, communities, and infrastructures, such as schools, factories, bridges. Second, um, to revitalize fire-dependent ecologies that have become decadent due to the exclusion of natural fires for long intervals. Um, third, to clear land for building houses, towns, roads, golf courses, vineyards, and so forth. And I have very mixed feelings about simply torching the countryside to put in yet more vineyards and golf courses. And fourthly, as with indigenous people, to renew browse for game animals. So those uh, those are the similarities and differences between cultural and prescribed burning. And I articulated those at the Sweden conference. Well, so you're describing a time when the modern uh, Republic of California is working hand in hand with the uh, ancient settlers here for very similar ends and through very similar means. Um, do you see a, uh, as a Catholic theologian, do you see a continuity with our traditions going back 2000 years that, uh, you know, stewardship of the earth or as, you know, Adam, the first gardener, wh where do you come at this from the Graduate Theological Union point of view? Interesting question. Um, <laughs> obviously, Christianity has evolved historically through thousands of different cultures in Europe and elsewhere. Um, uh, and and I haven't done a, a survey of biblical literature to see um, the uses of fire, but um, well, since we're in Advent, I remember uh, the, uh, uh, is it from Isaiah? It's it's um, the phrase that he's come with is winnowing fork and, and fire. Um, mm. There's there's the sense in scripture that um, fire is a, is a renewing agent, a purifying agent, um, a refiner's fire, um, which is from Isaiah and uh, is in uh, uh, Handel's Messiah. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, recitative. Um, so I would say that, um, and of course, we know that Christianity evolved largely in urban contexts in the early empire, but um, spread throughout Europe to rural contexts where rural people did what rural people have done since before Christianity arrived there. So I think Christianity has adapted to the perceived importance of the fire ecology. Um, I don't know to what extent you could say that Christian theological influence affected it. I would say it would be the other way around, that, that Christian ecological spirituality now, um, particularly Catholic, um, if you look at Laudato Si, is taking a page out of many different books. Um, and a humble theological perspective would welcome the input of spiritualities and human experiences from around the globe. Um, and so, you know, I can't imagine a Christian saying, oh, burning is wrong, we can't do it. No, no, but I, I'm wondering if there's a way in which you will take us toward the, you know, as, as I think you're, you are going to advocate that we should be careful with how we treat our planet as good stewards of it. Um, this would be, this would be part of it, right? And I think that's, that's part of Laudato Si and connected to like how St. Francis saw 
God in nature around him as sort of a fifth gospel. But really, like, here we are, we have such tremendous technological power at the moment. And with that power comes the not only the um, opportunity, but also the responsibility for for care care of our care of our home, our house, our uh, ecology, as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to know more about the ecological context of St. Francis's theological reflections. I think in the, the prayer of St. Francis, um, it's either brother or sister fire. I can't remember how fire is personified yeah. there. Uh, but obviously, medieval Italian peasants were as at risk for fire in a, in a hot, dry Mediterranean climate as any other time. So undoubtedly, the people were quite aware of the importance of reducing the fuel load. Um, what um, After uh, we lost our house to fire in 2015, uh, I started a group, a Facebook group called um, Wildfire Safer Cobb Mountain. And basically, our, our question is, how do we rationally inhabit a fire ecology? Uh, those of us who decided to rebuild and continue to live in a place like Lake County, instead of fleeing back to the Bay Area or the East Coast, um, have to recognize that periodic ecologically cleansing fires are a natural part of the ecosystem. And so you either let your houses and communities burn down again and again and again, or you develop rational strategies for inhabiting that. And one of the rational strategies, of course, is to build um, fire-hardened houses out of concrete with a steel roof. Um, another would be to create defensible space. A third would be to have a dynamic response system. And at, at our place at Cobb, we have a 16,000-gallon cistern, a Honda pump that can pump 100 gallons a minute, 500 feet of wildland hose uh, that can be deployed for a meaningful, a meaningfully effective way of defending a house set in a defensible space. Um, so to extend that to human life on the planet, um, obviously um, climate disruption is making all e ecologies uh, hotter and drier. It's drying out interior continent, the interiors of continents. It's making fire seasons longer, hotter, drier, and windier. And humans are gonna have to respond to this um, in a rational way. And um, naturally, since theology is um, a, a dialogue, um, words about God in, in dialogue, uh, not, a, not a static entity, our theology now, as Pope Francis has done in Laudato Si, is going to have to incorporate um, critical reflection on what secular experiences and ecological science are telling us we're going to need to do in order to continue to inhabit the earth. Yeah. Um, so where does that take us next? I mean, I I think everybody can agree. I mean, and I think everybody can agree that the that the climate has been changing and the planet is warming. And I and I don't mean this in a political way, but you know that 10,000 years ago, ice covered North America. And if you go to Los Angeles, you can see the bones of the um, mammoth in the La Brea Tar Pits. Well, there's no, no mammoth is going to live comfortably in Los Angeles today because it's getting warmer. And then on top of that, I think here's where the debate comes in is people say, well, how much of this is because of our growing population and our burning of um, fossil fuels as we continue to have cleaner and cleaner um, gasoline and stuff like that. We we know we cannot control Chinese coal plants and so on. So there's there's limited authority that we have, limited power at least, over what this 8 billion people we share this planet with can do. So what would what would you say that that we that we should all be doing either as a society or as an individual burning is a great idea what else um well um i'm trying to go back to a, a chapter i contributed to um climate abandoned edited by jill cody that came out in uh, 2018 and i i wrote a chapter called um, Religion and Climate Change, Climate Crisis and Religion. Oh, perfect, yeah. And um, part of the chapter was looking at what various relig religions and religious denominations have had to say about climate. And um, 
but the second half of my chapter was religious responses to climate change. And um, so I say that the final section of this chapter sketches four concrete responses that religious believers can make to the unfolding climate crisis. And these are addressing overconsumption, which uh, Pope Francis does in Laudato Si, addressing overpopulation, which Pope Francis studiously avoids in Laudato Si. Um, the third is uh, responding to um, the ecological case, crisis through one case study, the case of ecological refugeeism. Um, I mean, I, I came up with several dozen case studies, but I think ecological refugeeism was the one that spoke to me, um, particularly because we are seeing um, places like Kiribati, uh, an island nation in the South Pacific that is going to be inundated and that has 130,000 people who will either drown or have to be moved. Um, and, and how do you how do you preserve them as a, as a maritime people? Fortunately, uh, I believe uh, New Zealand is going to take them all in. Um, but we're going to have ecological refugeeism around the globe um, as countries become uninhabitable through heat. And how do how do people in more privileged countries uh, square this with their religious obligation to care for the, the refugees, the less fortunate? Uh, the final section in my chapter was offering a prophetic witness for hope. Uh, and and I, I said there that we, um, you know, we're, it, it, we can simply lie down under the juggernaut of climate change and and um, faint from <laughs> depression at how uh, all of this seems insurmountable. Or we can try to live in hope. Uh, and I, as a father of two young men, 28 and 24, who have uh, I hope at least 60 years of life ahead of them uh, compared with me, I have to think of hope because yeah. it's their future. Yeah. Well, and I think you really put your finger on it that this is not that hard for us who live in the wealthy parts of the world uh, where our lives have only increased in quality, even as the planet has been warming up over the last decades and centuries. But how do we look after our uh, you know, neighbors on the planet. Now, hopefully they're going to get rich too because technology is growing all the time. But in the meantime, what if you live on a coast or what if you live in a, a place that's close to the sea level like um, oh, Bangladesh or someplace that's, you know, populous, poor and close to the sea? What kind of intervention? The New Zealanders are to be commended and I hope we all, we all get on mm -hmm. board with those efforts uh, because the planet itself is rich and uh, the the pr problem spots are few comparatively. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the second chapter I wrote for Climate Abandoned was far more frightening for me. It was on polar ice. And um, if all ice on Earth melted, um, I think sea level would rise by 162 feet, which would completely erase not only Venice and Bangladesh and Vietnam and London and New York, but countless other places. Uh, I think Denver would be okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and so uh, these are enormous, almost insurmountable questions and problems. Um, I would say um, I actually came away from the Sweden summit two weeks ago quite hardened because as somebody who's 67 and has taught environmental ethics since 1990, and and thought about it even longer, sometimes I feel in despair that nothing I've done has made a difference. When I was um, in my teens, the world population was 3 billion. Now it's approaching 8 billion. And nothing that anybody has done, has been able to do in between, has been able to uh, restrain out of control human reproduction, uh, or, or even bring a sense of uh, pause that that maybe we need to control our population. Um, well, yeah, you shot you. I just want to say that I just want to register that you're shocking me there with your with that last statement because I have the opposite fear. I think that we in the developed world are not reproducing ourselves as our populations plateau and will eventually turn down. And the hope for the human expansion is from the global south, which is exactly the people who will suffer more from from climate change. But I also think that they will grow wealthy with time. And I'm hoping that people will have more kids, but you're hoping the opposite. You're hoping they have fewer. Well, I, I don't think 8 billion is sustainable. 
in the long term. But it would take an entire other podcast to look at the question of yeah. population. And what I was trying to say was I came away from the Sweden Forest Innovation Summit, which was peopled largely by people quite younger than myself, um, like two young women from Sweden who were working on transforming lignin, that is wood pulp, uh, into usable carbon for um, for electric vehicles and lots of other things. Uh, I just I came away with an immense sense of uh, encouragement and 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 being hardened that uh, there are lots of younger people stepping up to the plate and who may be able to envision things in a way which an older generation simply can't um, or or isn't prepared to. So I do want to say that there are even though I have lots of um, causes for alarm when I look at the climate crisis, I also see that we have to look at innovation. We have to have hope in the future generation and future generations being able to manage things and rethink things. That's a really important point. And I think it's very hard for attitudes to change within a lifetime, but easy for them to change as with through generations. And I, I recognize things that my kids think that are different from what I think. And I know I think things differently than my parents. And this is where the you know the society is bending in in different ways. Some some I think as you say are good, and some I would say are regrettable. But that probably should be another podcast. We only have about five minutes. What 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 thoughts do you want to leave our listeners with? And uh, I hope to talk to you, with you about uh, certainly your essay uh, about Star Trek. That that's I would love right. to do that in the future. But also any other topics you want to take up, especially because I think yeah. we disagree about stuff, even though I admire you a lot. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, just a few things um, to conclude with. Um, and I will send you a, a picture of the cover of uh, Climate Abandoned. But Jill Cody's book really is great. And um, one of the things I liked is that she instructed all of us authors to end each chapter by a, by a, a brief set of reflections. It's called Keep, Stop, and Start. Keep doing this, stop doing this, and start doing this. So where where what we're doing as a species or as a culture or as an industry is good and helpful for um, attempting to bring climate change under control, keep on doing that. Where it's clearly wrong, um, stop doing that. Like, you know, flying to Bali uh, every year for a vacation uh, might be something we want to stop doing. And then start doing such and such. And these are the interesting things that have, have come up. Um, I mean, I, I'm, uh, even though some people don't like Zoom, I was amazed with, um, with uh, COVID coming around and the, the advent of Zoom. How much can be gotten done uh, on on Zoom calls without having millions of people driving anywhere between five and fifty miles to go to a meeting? And so, um, so that would be something that Jill would talk about as starting, starting doing this. And in my um, uh, in my religion chapter, uh, what I said was to we should start stepping out of our comfort zone and engage with other communities. Differences in religious ideologies have sparked conflict for centuries, but it's now crucial to put these differences aside and work toward a common goal. The effects of climate change will not discriminate between Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, and atheists. Empathy and understanding are essential instruments if the global community is ever to come together to combat climate change effectively and ensure environmental and social justice for all. And the second start um, element is start engaging with faith communities to learn about their unique perspectives, teachings, and actions with respect to climate change. In order to understand what solutions will be the most effective, we must examine what has and has not worked in different communities around the globe. Since there is no single correct strategy for combating climate change, plural approaches can and should be evaluated and adopted where appropriate. The contrasting worldviews, cultural traditions, and geographical contexts of different religious communities offer us a rich panoply of resources on which to draw as we craft our collective human response to the climate crisis. That's excellent. Peter, it has been a pleasure. You have challenged me more than a little bit, and you have taught me a lot. So thank you so much for being part of Almost Good Catholics. Yes, thank you for having me on the program, Chris. And I look forward to our future engagements. Here, here.
do would you like to read uh, your blessing or from Laudato Si? Or? Yeah, um, Pope Francis at the the end of Laudato Si has a lovely um, prayer for our earth. All-powerful God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. You embrace with your tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of your love that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace that we may live as brothers and sisters, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to rescue the abandoned and forgotten of this earth, so precious in your eyes. Bring healing to our lives that we may protect the world and not prey on it that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain at the expense of the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey towards your infinite light. We thank you for being with us each day. Encourage us, we pray, in our struggle for justice, love, and peace. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Adinitz and Peter Hess recorded this conversation on December 5th, 2023. That day and also December 6th are the Feast of St. Nicholas when children in Europe, including my kids in our Polish tradition, put their shoes out for St. Nicholas. Uh, the original St. Nicholas was a fourth century Bishop of Mira in present-day Turkey, who used to care for the poor by dropping bags of gold down the chimneys of girls who could not afford dowries so that they could have honorable lives as wives and mothers instead of being pushed into the alternative through their poverty. So that guy is now Santa Claus. <laughs> our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band www.gscoasterband.com and our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website www.english.op.org I thank you for listening and I welcome your emails at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com I will answer every single one Talk to you next time on Almost Good Catholics this this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing.